Welcome back, everyone. The title of today's podcast is When Organic Makes the Grade. And I know that in my past podcasts, I have said some negative things about vegetables and particularly grains. And I just want to assure everyone that uh, I can distinguish the uh, baby from the bathwater. And uh, just as I don't like it when all types of meat raising is is grouped together and that I see of a huge distinction between factory farming and feedlots and uh, rotational grazing of meats there is there are there's a big difference between the way a lot of conventional vegetables are grown and particularly grains and those that are really trying to do it uh, regeneratively um, personally I'm, I'm spoiled rotten I have access to all kinds of really good organic vegetables grown very locally. Some of it's right next door, the farm next door with organic CSA. And um, it's really great to be able to get vegetables there from people that I know are trying really hard to to be regenerative, to trying to leave their soil more fertile than, than it began and, and to not cause damage. Um, but the reality is that uh, vegetable farmings have extra challenges in order to, to be regenerative. And and if I do say negative things about um, vegetables and particularly grains, um, I want to be very clear, um, put my cards out on the table right away, that um, if I have an agenda, it, it's, it's to argue that um, most people out there have a notion that plant-based diet is, is the real ecological way to go and the way to, um, you know, be the 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 best steward of, of of the earth and whatnot and um i really don't believe that is um accurate and i think that doesn't actually take into reality and while animals can be some of the worst um worst causes of environmental degradation when done right actually there's nothing that can compare to their ability to to participate and, and sequester carbon and to grow soil and all that that we've talked about. And so, um, not that vegetables are bad, but in a sense, dethroning them as the pinnacle and the epitome of the ecological diet and to put animals back in the place of, of where they belong. And, and then after doing that, I, I do hope that many of these people, because I think the vast majorities of people who are vegetarian aren't necessarily doing it just for their own bodies or just because they have a hard time with the idea of killing things, but they're really doing it for the, for the environment. And I want um, them to know that I am their ally. I really, I'm trying to accomplish and I care about the same things they do. And I'm doing it through, uh, I'm doing it through systems that are are, have been have evolved to do exactly what um, the regenerative things that we want to happen in nature. So um, I, I'm going to break it down into two challenges, sort of two categories of challenges that I see that vegetables have to face. And I, ha I think that I have too much to say about each one that I'm going to have to make this a two-part series. And so to, to approach it conceptually before we get down into the, the more granular um, practical nuts and bolts of what how what's going on um i kind of see a contrast of different systems so you have you have two different kinds of efficiencies so there's nature's efficiency 
And she's all about um, diversity of species and diversities of systems. And you have just oodles and oodles of different kinds of organisms all interacting with each other with a healthy amount of competition, with a you know an appropriate amount of stress. And in that so so for instance, that's the kind of um, efficiency that you're tapping into with a pasture, right? So a pasture is it's really you you don't plow it up at least, um, the wheat. <laughs> there may be people who do this, but I, I think the the better way of, is not to just plow it up and to plant Timothy grass just for your horses, or just you know to have one kind of crop. Um, ultimately, the rotational grazer is looking for that diversity. So we have tons of different kinds of grasses, and we have legumes and broad leaves, and we have so uh, a whole range, multiple types of species going on. And um, part of that is goes back to that solar panel and capturing the sunlight. So, you know, all the different angles that the sun's out that you have. You have grasses, the tall, skinny blades that stick stick up, you know, vertically. Then you have broad leaf things that are flatter. And you have, um, right, you have a whole array of, of, of photosynthesis and things capturing the light at all these different angles. But it goes far more than that, right? So you have... You have grasses that uh, are, you know, they do really well in heat, you know, or you have grasses that do really well when it's cold, or you have grasses that do well when it's dry or when it's, uh, you know, when it's wet. You have some that, um, you know, go far into the winter and retain a lot of the nutrition. You know, you have some legumes in there and they're fixing nitrogen and they're high in, in protein. You have, you know, have deeper rooted plants and they're bringing up minerals to the top, you know. So you just, it goes on and on. They all have these little different niches and, you know, seasons are always changing. And so they all kind of thrive and they may sort of dominate more in what time, you know, at certain times and, and whatnot. But there's this sort of healthy competition going on. They're all vibrant and they just fill up the space and it's quite chaotic but within that chaos is this gorgeous sort of efficiency and abundance and so the rotational grazer is just sort of tapping into that efficiency sticking the ruminants in there to to help condition that um, and provide that appropriate amount of competition and and can you know and you know, cutting the grass back and then it grows back, you know, and, and that whole system. And when you participate in that, you're just kind of, as the farmer, you're, you're gleaning all these, this excess abundance that you can take off and the system remains fully intact. Um, and the opposite kind of efficiency is, you know, from our scientific method. So the scientific method, uh, especially when you're doing research or whatnot, you, you're narrowing your scope. You're narrowing to trying to get down to just one variable and you control for all the others. So you take care of everything else and you're really narrowing into one, into one variable. And, you know, this is the efficiency of, of the factory. This is the efficiency of industry and technology, right? So, um, whereas a person who's on an assembly line, you know, might get carpal tunnel syndrome and just go mad and crazy for the, rep rep the repetition, you know, we can easily make... Um, you know, we can get a robot and it makes the same movement over and over. That more simple and repetitive uh, lends itself very easily 
to to um, technology and and mechanized and it's this efficiency of just not the whole chaotic whole but it's the efficiency of the individual the efficiency of that single variable and just by the very nature of of what you're selling and what you're farming a vegetable farmer has to fall into that category and this is just by necessity, right? I mean, you don't, if you've got an order for, you know, two bushels of beans and a couple bushels of tomatoes or whatever, you don't frolic around a pasture with a basket picking a bean here and a tomato there until you fill them up. You, you, you gotta, you gotta have one area where you've designated, okay, this half acre here is for tomatoes or this quarter acre, whatever the number is, you know, is for beans. And this section here is only for, for cucumbers, for lettuce, whatever. So that when you go, you, you pick, you have to have that sort of, um, mechanical efficiency to sort of meet the demand that, that we're looking for there. You're not you're not some cow or sheep that's just goes out there and eats what's there and just grabs it all together and mixes it all in. You're selling beans, you're selling tomatoes. And so what happens is you have to you have to take out all the competition. And the 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 main and dominant way to do that is to till and to plow. And we have a long history of this, right? This is all the way back from when the pioneers came. And there was this gorgeous, gorgeous soil where the buffalo had been roaming in the grasslands where we just tore up the grasslands. Or, you know, it, it, that was much easier than, than when you would have to, you know, cut the trees down and whatnot. But what they would do is they would plow and they would tear up that earth and they would plant their stuff and they would kind of use that land up. And then they would move on and then keep moving west or wherever they're moving. And, you know, with uh, they would leave and with when there's not too many people, you know, eventually that land would kind of heal over and, and go fallow and, you know, the systems would begin to rev up again. Um, but as more and more people um, settled here and, you know, all the Indians had been killed off or died of disease, right? But then we started filling it up with other people, then... Um, this, the long history kind of culminated in, um, in the early 1900s when we had the Dust Bowl and many people, um, forget that the Dust Bowl was not a function of drought. It was a function of the plow. And then when the systems just kind of ground to a halt and the rains did not come, there was no resilience and it just literally blew away the soil as dust, and they lost hundreds of millions of acres. I mean, it's, uh, the numbers are staggering. But the sad thing is, even though that kind of woke up our culture and even the government and the you know agriculture, um, Department of Agriculture started having you know, soil conservation um, requirements and, you know, the attempts to, to get back control and conserve that soil, the the sad history is that it's continued to to basically well erode away and so we have lost some 30 percent of what used to be our soils here i don't know the exact numbers i get very overwhelmed very quickly you know i hear the figure six billion tons metric tons or whatever cubic metric tons and it just to me it's just so astronomical i can't I can't even comprehend, you know, they say that we used to measure it in feet of the topsoil in the Midwest, and now we measure it in inches. And, you know, that's that's lifeblood um, going straight, just 
most of it's going right and ends up in the ocean. And that's a function of tilling. And there's a there's a misconception I think that we have to take care of right away and that the idea that you gotta you gotta fluff up that soil so that the seeds will germinate and then the roots will be able to get the nutrients out of the soil. Um it's it's a total myth and it's not why we till and it's not remotely true because it's not certainly not true in a pasture but what's going on is because of that scientific method is that you're trying to um you're trying to raise you know you're trying to grow just one kind of a vegetable or grain in that area and so you have to take care of all the competition and tilling is a way to wipe the slate clean Right, and I'm often reminded of of Michael Pollan. He he writes a section, and um, forgetting right now which book it might be in the Botany of Desire. Read these books a long time ago, but he he talks about like, and anytime you, because this goes down all the way to um, the gardener, right? So uh, much of what I'm talking about is very easy and applicable to, to, you know, you see the monocropped grain growing in the Midwest where you just, you just for miles and miles, you can just take that tractor and draw a straight line for five, ten miles and you just, you know. But the same is true also for the, the gardener, the home gardener, or even the small vegetable farmer, you know. And, and Michael Pollan talked about how you, be, you begin... And you try to set order to your garden, and that's like the Apollo, the Roman god, Apollo of order. And you got these straight lines, and you know, and it and there's a certain beauty that we enjoy and our mind likes about that. Um, you know, I got my beans here, and I got my cucumbers here, and my zucchini here, and you know, you got it all planned out and everything. But by the end, he said, Dionysus always wins in the end, and she turns it all into chaos. And the reason why that happens is because. The the soil and the and the grass and everything that's covering um, the soil is is like it's like the earth's skin, right? So like as soon as you plow and you scratch it up, you've like taken a layer off, and immediately the systems there just want to cover it up. And the first and foremost important part of that is just mechanical, right? So the 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 roots of the plants is what keeps the soil just mechanically structurally. Um, intact. I mean, that's very oversimplified. Um, but if you've got plants growing with roots in the ground, um, not only do you keep, uh, you sort of break the, the velocity of the raindrops that would hit the bare dirt, but also when the water starts running, those roots and all the functions and ecosystems and things around the roots are holding that soil in mechanically so that it doesn't flow down and, and run into the waterways. And so this is, this is the first and foremost, um, well, hurdle that the vegetable grower has to deal with because you know, in order to make a business of it, you have to use the scientific method of, of narrowing down to one variable. And so you, you, how do we mitigate that? Right. So it used to be you, you would till and then you would plant your stuff and then you would go back over and you would often till just to keep the weeds down until that crop that you're trying to grow has dominated and it's taken up most of the space. And, um, and then from from there, you know, you might you can do less tilling, but that was that was the main thing, right? And so, what um, 
the, the, in, in terms of, of dealing with that hurdle, um, suddenly you have to to approach. You know, you get you get the what people call you know no tilling or or you get uh, you know less tilling or whatnot. So things I know that to mitigate for this is um, there's a lot of people that they may till once and, and you know start with a blank slate. And then as things are going up, they um, try not to disturb it too much. And they're, you know, they're pushing down the seeds into the ground without disturbing the soil too much. Drilling, you know, they drill the seeds in. And then, um, you know, some people I know cultivate. Well, that's another word for plowing or tilling. Or, but it's really, you're, you're getting rid of the weeds. And they might just have these um, implements that are just taking off the top inch. Right, so it's all about a mitigation again, right? Trying to do less damage because nature really wants to to heal that scab over and have a gazillion different species, and she's she's gonna keep all those seeds are gonna keep germinating, and the weeds are gonna come, whatever's gonna come, uh, you know, those forces of how um, in the environment and nature works is they're gonna try to fill that place with as many species. So you here, it's a constant battle to keep back all that competition, you know, to control for all those other variables, and so some. Some people are, you know, just um, shaving off, you know, the top inch, you know, and so the, what you end up doing is you you're taking out all those weeds and all the roots of the weeds, and so but you haven't disturbed the soil too far down, you know. And another way of of dealing with this as well is is mulching. So people mulch, um, you know, once they've got their plants in and um, they can maybe put hay around, you know, or maybe they prefer wood chips, depending on what kind of plant it is. Or um, some people I know are putting uh, black plastic. Um, and in each of these cases, you're sort of making a compromise. So you're not, the systems, you know, aren't like revving up at, you know, at 200% where nature wants to be and in having all these diversity, whatever. But at the same time, you're not, you're not destroying the soil. So you're mitigating a whole lot of damage. So you're managing to keep a lot of the moisture in the ground. You're managing to keep a lot of the structure intact and, um, uh, you know, you you also you're not having the erosion issues of all that all that um, soil running down into the into the oceans and and the thing is, you know, that structure that structure is so much more than than just the roots holding things together. Right? You've got your worms and you've got your um, you've got your fungus, you've got your bacteria, and all these systems that have to work symbiotically. You know, it's like this economy going on in there, and it takes a little while for things to get going, and um, whether it's worms digging tunnels uh, and their vermicastings being brought to the top and providing more nutrients, you know, the, the soil is is very complicated and it has to accomplish sort of two very contradictory things at the same time. So you have to, you, the soil needs to be able to hold water as well as being able to hold oxygen because it needs both of those things. And so, um, Kind of what happens is you have, again, this is the diversity. So you have you have what you call aggregates. So your soil is um, 
basically it, it clumps together in different sizes. And in, in those different sizes, you know, when you have a smaller area and a smaller pore, you know, a smaller hole, the water stays in there and just the, you know, the way water works, it sort of holds itself and it's going to stay in those smaller areas and it takes a lot more force, to, you know, because it sort of cohedes to itself. And um, the bigger holes, and I think those would be like maybe wormholes or, you know, where roots have died or whatnot, then a lot of that, that water drains out and there's more oxygen available in there. But it's a very complicated, and of course, this crazy balancing act of homeostasis, sort of balancing act of, of things that are being used for both water and oxygen. Because if it all filled with water, uh, there'd be no room for oxygen and then, you know their own way all the animals all the critters all the plants and everything they have to have oxygen to sort of breathe in a way um, but if you don't have water too they're all going to die if they don't get their water so um, that structure that happens is um, very complicated so you've got you know bacteria um, and they oftentimes are living in their own sort of ooze because um you know, that's the environment. They need to be moist. And then you've got fungus that's also um, has to have a certain environment. So they're all kind of putting out this sort of gooey stuff. And that's holding together a lot of these soil particles. And um, so every time you disturb that, right, even if you're just disturbing it once a year, just, you know, you just start with that clean slate, you're setting the systems back to zero. And so that's a big challenge, you know, whereas our pastures, it's been decades and decades and decades of, of having been intact. Those systems are, they're at full throttle and they're working to sequester all that carbon and they're working to, um, you know, get that water in and retain that water with all that organic matter and as well as keep on building that soil. So that challenge in mind is actually, I, I want to venture out into a discussion that I've been very reluctant to go to, but I think finally this is the context that needs to be, um, GMOs need to be talked about, right? So, um, and when you're at market and you're talking with customers, you know, people care about, they care about the environment and they care about what's going in their bodies. And, you know, the, they're, they're very anti-GMO and, um, understandably, you know, but I think sometimes, not sometimes, almost all the time, the discussion of GMOs is never in the proper context, and I believe that once we understand what's going on with tilling and once we understand what's going on um, with that soil and its need to stay intact and remembering that we've gone through a period where we've <laughs> pretty much lost our, lost our soil and it stopped working is that... Um, Within the system, uh, these huge farms, you know, the vast, vast majority of how we raise grain and, and vegetables, um, that plowing there is, is how, we, how they control for those variables. Um, um, because this is, that's something that mechanically and technology and machines can do. Um, putting a mulch and other things oftentimes requires a lot of manual labor. And that's not the direction that um, conventional farming has gone. It's become less and less farmers and more and more technology. So in that context, um, I imagine someone at Monsanto um, who may have been very ecologically minded um, came up with a brilliant idea of Roundup, right? And so we're all very concerned about glyphosate and what it's doing, but 
in their mind and in reality, right? So if there's if your choice again is between tilling and spraying right okay, well I should explain the whole roundup for those um, who may not quite remember what's going on there, but right, so they have especially like your corn and your soya, they have they have genetically modified these plants so that um, they're resistant to this um, herbicide, right? And so why would they spray herbicides? Um, it's, again, to take care of all that competition. But so when they can do this, they can, even when the plant is up, so they don't, this is not, um, it can be done originally to do a clean slate, but this can also be done when the, um, when the corn or soy has already come up, they can now spray this herbicide and it'll kill everything but the, um, but the plant that's been genetically modified. And so this has mitigated tilling. Right, so that's really an ecological argument for for GMOs, right? And so if we don't talk about GMOs within that context and in terms of what it's mitigating, we kind of miss the idea, right? Normally we're we're concerned about glyphosate and we're, we're concerned about all that poison. But I always have to remind people that, you know, if we're talking about glyphosate versus, you know, organic CSA vegetable farm, I'm absolutely with you. But if we're talking about 95% of how food is grown and you have a choice between glyphosate that kills all the foliage of the plants, it actually, in comparison to a lot of the other herbicides, is is actually, in comparison, is not nearly as destructive, is not nearly as toxic, right? So... Um, the claim is that it's just, it's not going into the roots. It's leaving the soil intact and it's just taking care of the foliage. Whereas, um, and I know that there are people are trying really hard out there with studies to show that it's more involved with that. And I have no doubt that um, it creeps into the systems much more than that. But that always has to be taken into account um, relative to, to what we used to use. Now, if I... If I understand right, I think still to this day, after glyphosate, the second most used um, uh, chemical there is the atrazine. And we atrazine, we know what atrazine does. You know, that's that's that old chemical that got into the rivers and was turning all the male frogs into female frogs. And I think they were growing extra legs. And I mean... I mean, glyphosate hasn't got to that point where we can, you know, point to that canary in the, in the, you know, frogs and the amphibians are always the canary in the coal mine, right? It's not like we can point there and say, look, this is what's happening, right? We, we have to dig a little bit, and I'm sure we will find it, right? And But in comparison to what it had replaced, and a lot of the stuff, a lot of the stuff went down into the roots, right? You know, or if you talk about, you know, your, you know, your pesticides as well, you know, if you, I mean, those those things um, are, are crazy, crazy harmful to the environment. But if you're using Roundup, you actually can take care of a lot of that competition of the leaves and stuff. And I think that also because, simply because you have less species of plants, you therefore have also less species of, of pests and whatnot. But very complicated issue. And I think that we need to have that debate within that context. And um, if you can do it without glyphosate and do it well, absolutely. But if we're talking about the systems, and if you were to ask me, would you rather than be tilling that soil and knowing that a certain percentage of that soil, 
you know, even if it's as you know 10% or whatever, it, when we're going to be losing that soil every year versus putting some glyphosate so that the, actually just the foliage gets taken down and the soil actually stays more intact than it would if you were in tilling and you maybe you have erosion that's you know down to three percent i don't know what the numbers would be but i think if if i was looking at and that was the parameter of the discussion then absolutely i would want to go with roundup right because then we would be mitigating the tilling so uh you know so anyways hopefully that wasn't too far of a diversion but I just think that we need to approach these issues with a lot more knowledge and a lot more context, right? And so I'm going to move on, um, but um, I wanted to address one more thing that um, that also tilling the soil and, and how it relates. Because I'm always claiming that I'm always claiming that rotational grazing is sequestering carbon, and so I wanted to get a little bit more into. Um, what that is um, before I sign off here and, and what, what's involved in that. And so I'm going to simplify this um, way too far. But essentially, soils can, um, one way to look at soils is to see a spectrum of, of bacteria versus fungus. And um, if you look at like a forest and, the, and what's going on in there, the soil and um, the ecology there, it's vastly dominated by fung fungal fungus and um and if you get to a a garden you know or vegetable growing then um that is vastly dominated by um bacteria and uh you and so that's kind of the ends of the spectrum and then if the pasture is kind of in the middle there and it has you know somewhere in the area vicinity of 50 50 where it has both both mushroom or both fungal um populations that are um, intact and in, in bacteria now what's going on with the vegetables and annual stuff when it's not a perennial crop it's not a perennial pasture is is again has to do a lot of function of just restarting over and over right and bacteria can reproduce so quickly and um, establish themselves very quickly and the fungus actually takes a little more time to establish itself and it needs not only a function of time but it needs a stability where you're not disrupting the soil nearly as much and um and why is that important? Well, what and the studies and the science that's coming out of it now is that for uh, and I don't understand it all, but the re for some reason the the fungal, the fungus and the mushrooms that are in the forest aren't really sequestering carbon in the soil. But when you're talking about a pasture, there's um, the the mycorrhizal, so that's the fungus that grows around the roots of the um, the roots of the of the plants and grasses and whatnot there and that is it has a symbiotic relationship so and it's at the tip of the root so it not it's extending the roots in a sense so it's mycelia are going farther and gathering all these nutrients but what goes on is that um in exchange for um in exchange for these nutrients the plant actually gives carbon to the um gives carbon to the to the fungus to the mycorrhizal and it's in a very stable form and so um, a huge amount of that um, when you say that you're sequestering carbon and you're building that soil uh, a large percentage of that and I'm not sure of the numbers which I probably should be better at all these numbers but um, 
is is actually what's going on with mushrooms and actually what's going on with fungi fungal and so and it's all about this sort of um little economies that are going on between um, roots and and these and these um, organisms underneath the ground and so essentially and keeping this mind keep in mind for the next podcast because i'm gonna i'm gonna get back to this but essentially much of what's going on is that the 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 fungal the fungus the mycorrhizal is trading nutrients that the plant has a harder time to get and it's trading those and in return the plant gives its carbon and that carbon gets put into the soil so it's a beautiful way to sequester carbon and it does it far more efficiently than um, pretty much any system out there so one more reason why um, the you know the pasture and a perennial sort of system and when it stays intact has an advantage over that you know when we're when we're plowing and and disturbing the soil so that we only grow one type of thing so so that's kind of the summary of the first challenge and um, we'll get to the next one uh, another day all right thanks for listening bye